The Russian invasion of Ukraine continues this week, returning with an update on the impact it's having on the church and the faithful is Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Boris Kutyak of Philadelphia. Is Russian President Vladimir Putin unhinged or is he following a methodical and well-considered strategy? Columnist and senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Roggio, is here with analysis. Retired Army Colonel, doctor and nun, Sister Didi Byrne, tells us why she's suing the District of Columbia for denying her a religious exemption from the COVID vaccine mandate. And how does the moral standing of the U.S. and the West affect their response to Russia's invasion? Editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal, weighs in. The World Over begins now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send us a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get started. The Pope's envoy arrived in Ukraine this week, Polish Cardinal Konrad Krajewski, the Vatican's almoner, a centuries-old job of handing out alms. He is visiting with refugees and eight, visiting aid warehouses throughout Ukraine. This past Sunday, Pope Francis announced he was sending two cardinals to Ukraine to represent the Holy Father to all Christian people who express solidarity in the country. Another member of the delegation, Cardinal Michael Zerny, toured a migrant reception center along the Hungarian-Ukrainian border. How are the faithful and clergy coping with this Russian invasion, and how will it shape the fate of Christianity in Ukraine? For answers, we're pleased to be joined in studio by Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Boris Gutyak of Philadelphia. Your Grace, thank you for being here. Your Grace, tell me about the 2.5 million refugees we're hearing are fleeing Ukraine when they can get out, and this horrible violence in Maripol, where you have a maternity hospital blown up, uh, you, you have horrible mass graves that have been erected. How are people coping with this? Well, with great difficulty. It's, it's, it's a devastating uh, experience for millions of people. The country has 40-odd million before this last uh, escalation mm -hmm. uh, of two weeks ago. And uh, two and a half million are out. At least two or three million are on the move in the country, moving west. Mm. Some of the western, eastern cities, um, Kharkiv, Kyiv, I think are more than half emptied by now. These are cities of three million, two million people. Uh, and um, people, you know, don't exactly know how to go there. You know, refugees flee the fire. Right. And uh, you never know how long you're going to be on the road, how far you're going to go, where you're going. Uh, you know who you've left behind. Men are not allowed to leave the country, so it's women and children that are leaving. Mm -hmm. And in Mariupol, the city's been surrounded. Uh, it's almost two weeks that they don't have regular water supply, food, electricity. Uh, I don't know what the temperature was this morning in Mariupol, but in Kharkiv it was... Uh, 
about 12 degrees Fahrenheit wow. in the morning. Some sections of Kharkiv don't have electricity and heat. Yeah. Um, there's curfews at night. And in a city like Mariupol that is totally surrounded, that yeah. is being bombarded, the mayor says there, yesterday there were 1,300 people killed, innocent civilians. Unbelievable. No, it's, it, this is a human rights tragedy and a refugee crisis now. It's, that, it's a war crime. Right. What, how is the church mobilizing? I mean, we have representatives of the Vatican in the region. What, is the what can the local church do? I mean, we have to admit, they're under the same attacks that the civilians are. So uh, the church continues its prayer. Uh, it goes down to the metros. I mean, some people have been in a, living in a subway for right. the last two weeks. Um, and particularly, it's trying to facilitate the delivery of food and medicine mm. and other humanitarian aid. It's very complicated because, as you've heard, the, the so-called humanitarian corridors, which were agreed to diplomatically, They're were bombed. Cut off and bombed, yeah. Uh, and the head of our church called them corridors of death. Mm -hmm. uh, his Beatitude Sietoslav today appealed to the world to uh, be more decisive in the defense of the innocent. Mm -hmm. uh, so the logistics uh, were very difficult in the first week, but by the end of the second week, the different aid organizations and the network of the parishes and Caritas, which is Catholic yeah. Charities, uh, has now begun working more effectively, more systematically in delivering the food. I talked to a bishop in Kharkiv just before we went on, went on mm -hmm. air, and um, there in the cathedral in Kharkiv, uh, they began distributing um, food at noon, but already at 8 a.m. there were long lines mm -hmm. outside of the church. Uh, they were able to get a train car of food to the cathedral and they're distributing it day to day. And many of the people are coming and saying, what, what kind of church is this? Who, who are you? So the food is going, the, the humanitarian aid is going to all people that mm. are in need. Uh, I, I want to, Your Grace, put some of this in, in context, the larger context of how we got to this moment and the role of religion. The Moscow Patriarch has said that his church and Putin view Kiev as their Jerusalem, as a new Jerusalem, uh, the, the centerpiece of their faith, and that a separation from Russian Orthodoxy is impossible. Is that how Kiev is actually viewed? And do you think that this is a realistic motivation for the carnage we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine? You know, uh, uh, people who do evil things make up all kinds of reasons uh, to mm -hmm. try to explain uh, the depravity of their activity. The, the, the fundamental reason is that Ukraine is a democracy. It's an open society with mm. freedom of religion, with uh, good, generally good uh, ecumenical relations and interreligious relations, freedom of the press. You know, right. EWTN is in Ukraine. Right. I don't think you're in Russia. No, are you? we're not. <laughs> but we are uh, in Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, although your offices had to be evacuated yes. from Kiev, like, like much of uh, the city. Mm -hmm. um, there's elections. Presidents win and lose elections. Parties are changed. Majorities uh, fluctuate. This virus of freedom is something Putin does not want to enter into Ukraine. That is the number one reason. He's afraid because that system will change him. NATO is a defensive alliance. Ukraine went from 900,000 troops in 91 to 6,000 battle-ready troops in 214. 
Ukraine wasn't attacking Russia. It's the first country that gave up its nukes. Mm. So these, these questions of security, there was no threat to Russian security other than ideas, the truth, mm. the gospel. Yeah. And this is the problem with the Russian Orthodox Church, that it, it is um, not been able to step back from its colonializing and imperialist identity. Mm. It's a church that is connected with the political power of an empire. That empire was reduced, and there's a nostalgia to recreate it. Mm. And it was actually Patriarch Kirill that came up with the yes. ideological construct, Russian world, which yes. then Putin right. you know, has been using. The eternal it's Russia. The, the, the sacred Russia. The third Rome. You can have all kinds of things. There's one criterion for our salvation in spiritual life. It's the gospel. Don't kill. Mm. Don't kill. If, if somebody is killing, if your political leader is killing, tell him not to kill. Mm. Don't abet this, as, Put, as, as, as Patriarch Kirill did in a scandalous uh, sermon this Sunday. Yeah, well, let's get into that for a moment while we're here. Um, he said this past Sunday he justified this incursion, this attack on Ukraine. And he said this is a, a war about which side of God humanity will be on. He referenced the decadence of the West, some of the excesses of what he sees as that decadence. And um, as many as 15 dioceses in the Orthodox Ukrainian Church have called him out. They've stricken his name, as we talked about last week, from their divine liturgies. Um, is there a schism here there, between there are his diocese, these right. are diocese in his jurisdiction? Right. These yeah. are the people under his yes. his pastoral control. Yeah. They are decrying him. Yeah. Um, do we see a schism happening here? And is that also fueling the aggressiveness of not only the military front, but the theological and narrative uh, uh, front coming from Kirill? You know, uh, this war has been won morally. It's clear. Uh, Ukraine is not going back. It's not going back to a totalitarian past in the 20th century. 15 million people were killed. Young people don't want that. Mm -hmm. And they're showing it by sacrificing their lives. Today, we are commemorating the first uh, of the graduates of the Ukrainian Catholic University that was killed. Mm -hmm. I'd like to mention him, Taras, uh, a wonderful young historian, Taras Hajduk. Um, there probably will be many others. Uh, young people, people of all generations, babushkas, little old ladies, mm. are, you know, uh, in Kyiv there was a drone outside the window of a lady and she threw her canned tomatoes at the drone and knocked it out. Uh, another woman told the Russian soldier, why don't you put some sunflower seeds in your pocket? Because when they put you six feet under, they'll grow better. Uh, you know, I mean, some of this is, is harsh, but yeah. this is in defense of, of maternity wards that are being bind, yeah. uh, bound. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, bishops of the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine are saying, if our patriarch does not stand be behind the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. if he doesn't reflect the love of Jesus, if he is not uh, a, a preacher of peace, mm -hmm. well, we can't have him as our leader. And, of course, there's a distancing. And, and Putin and now Kirill are consolidating Ukraine in Ukrainian orthodoxy like never before. Mm. Uh, George Weigel in First Things is calling for the Vatican to suspend ecumenical relations with the Russian Orthodox Church. 
until Kirill condemns this invasion of Ukraine. Your thoughts on that suggestion? Well, I think uh, any means and every means that would encourage um, uh, Christian leaders who preach the gospel to or supposedly preach the gospel to speak the truth and speak mm -hmm. the truth mm -hmm. to power are necessary. You know, uh, artists in uh, the Metropolitan cut his contract with a, a yeah. diva. Right. Uh, the Munich uh, Symphony, you know, released a conductor. Mm -hmm. um, we need signs. We have sanctions. And uh, I think it is very important uh, that all who have contact with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, encourage, mm -hmm. uh, insist upon the fact that the Russian, uh, insist upon uh, the Russian church to finally speak out against this invasion. But isn't it Peter's responsibility? In the gospel, Peter rises and corrects the brethren. Isn't it time? The Pope has said, by the way, that uh, he, and he offered in December to speak to Kirill as the tensions were growing. But I'm, I don't think that conversation took place. But as you said last week, he took the unprecedented step of going to the Holy See's embassy, Russia's Holy See embassy. That was embassy. a protest move. Yeah. That was, uh, but it, uh, they're saying they'll facilitate peace talks. Is that enough? Yeah. Because we have to remember, it's a religious narrative yeah. that's being offered as justification yeah. for the killing of the innocent there. Uh, the statements of this Sunday at the Angelus were, were, were very strong about, uh, you know, about the war, about the rivers of Ukrainian blood that are being shed. Uh, I think the whole world needs to do more. Uh, the the di diplomacy of the Vatican, of the Holy See, uh, needs to reassess. Uh, we see, you know, the United States, if, if uh, during the Obama administration there had been more decisive action when the war began in 214, mm -hmm. we'd have a different scenario. The world looked the other way, both the Obama administration and all of Europe. When Putin first went into Ukraine in 2014, I've said this I don't know how many hundreds of times. This is the second and continuing invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Pietro Parolin, the Vatican Secretary of State, who spoke with Lavrov, who is the uh, foreign minister of Russia. Uh, the, the, the Holy See press office confirmed the conversation this way. They said uh, he reiterated his call for an end to armed attacks, for the securing of humanitarian corridors for civilians and rescuers, and for the replacement of gun violence with negotiation. In this sense, finally, the Secretary of State reaffirmed the Holy See's willingness to do everything to put itself at the service of peace. Is the Holy See using that soft diplomatic power in the right way in the eyes of those on the ground whom you're talking to what, are they, well, what would they many, like to see see many people um, on the ground realize that even uh, the president of france uh, the uh, chancellor of of, of, of germany uh, the president of turkey these are uh, small players in Putin, Putin's eyes. It's the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Holy See and the Pope, you know, for, you know, uh, Putin is, is a follower of Stalin in many ways. Stalin said, how many divisions does the Pope have? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's work on a different level. We Christians, we have to pray. And mm -hmm. prayer brought down the Soviet Union, I'm convinced. I'm so glad you brought this up. I agree uh, with you. And uh, 
prayer is supporting uh, these these soldiers. I mean, it's ten to one. It's a ten to one battle. This is this is like you know uh, Pop Warner football team playing the Kansas Chief, uh, Kansas City Chiefs, uh -huh. uh, and they're holding their own. Mm. The score is least tied. Uh, the losses. You know, it's the 350-pound linemen on the chief side right. that that are on the ground. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, uh, how long can that last? Well, that's is the a question. question. How long can that last? Given the given the supplies, but Putin is feeling the economic pinch, and uh, he, he clearly he's he's marginalized. But how long can he continue this offense? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not a prophet or a military strategist. Uh, uh, I think that um, if there will not be stronger international support, uh, that Pop Warner team cannot stand in the second half uh, against mm -hmm. the Kansas City Chiefs, unless there's a miracle. Um, and we've seen we've seen miracles uh, in the past and in, in recent memory, precisely you know with the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, we need sky cover. Mm -hmm. uh, the skies need to be closed. The U.S. is not willing to do that. Europe isn't willing to do that. Uh, Ukrainians are saying, they're not, first of all, worried about what the Pope's saying. They're, they're worried about what the Western powers are mm -hmm. saying. And they're saying, how many millions have to leave and how many thousands have to be killed? How many maternity uh, hospitals need to be destroyed before there's a move? Are, there's are, a sense that Ukraine is being sacrificed. Well, we're going to stop. We're going to stop Putin at Ukraine's, at Ukraine's border. Mm -hmm. We'll stop him there. Uh, but everybody thought Putin would stop in 214 at what he did. Uh, and people are surprised. Uh, many people also in the church are surprised uh, that there's such a resistance. But that's because people have been swallowing hook, line, and sinker the Russian narrative. Mm. There needs to be a, a reconsideration, looking at the gospel, looking at the innocents, looking at these poor families, looking at these children killed. Look them in the eye and you'll get an answer what to do. Mm. Uh, I, I want to talk for a moment about um, you, you, you are part this afternoon. You're going to have a, a prayer service here in D.C. at the National 7, Shrine. 7 p.m., yeah. Uh, there was an interfaith prayer service in Ukraine with the Latin Rite as well as the yes. Orthodox. How is that perceived outside of Ukraine? How does Moscow read that, A? And tell me again about the power of prayer in this moment. Well, you know, I think it's, it's wonderful. Ukraine has united the world, and it's united it on the basis of ideas, ideals, and faith. Mm. Um, the New York Times had an article... Uh, uh, where, you know, uh, the author was saying, you know, the world's starting to believe in things again. Mm. Like objective truth. Something is wrong and something is right. In the 21st century, when we live in all of this deconstruction, where, well, it's what I think. Right. Uh, people have come together. Europe has come together. Uh, the U.S. has come together and inside and outside with, with Europe. Mm -hmm. It's a slow process over the last few weeks. But it's happening, and, and prayer is at the center of it. Um, uh, 
yesterday at one of these ecumenical prayer meetings, Cardinal Dolan in, in, in New York, hosted by the Ukrainian Orthodox Church with, uh, with a strong Greek Orthodox kind of initiative, uh, Cardinal Dolan says, you know, this is a question of faith. These people are responding with faith. Mm. And I can tell you, having lived there and having been there just uh, now in February, people want to see a priest. People want to pray. People want a blessing. People know that they are under God. And this country said we are under God. But we began not only doubting it, we began negating it. And I think there will be a call from Ukraine. There is already a call from Ukraine to pray, mm. to stand before God, to raise your arms before God and extend your hands of help to your brothers and sisters. You went so far in an interview with, with uh, Aid to the Church in Need, uh, and you said the following. I want to put this up. We pray for the people, for the refugees. We pray for the conversion of Vladimir Putin. We pray that as we begin Lent and go through to the resurrection, we realize that every crucifixion is lived in you. Every, every crucifixion, if it's lived in Christ, leads to the resurrection. I went uh, the day before the invasion, on the, on the 23rd of February, I did a pilgrimage to Lisieux, uh, to uh, little Teresa, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, for Russian Catholics is a patroness. Uh, her simplicity, her, her mystical life. Mm -hmm. And I prayed there for uh, Putin's conversion, for, for, for the sake of his soul, but for the sake of the lives of millions and tens of millions, maybe billions of people yeah. whose lives are and will be disrupted by what yeah. is going on. And contrary to the narrative that he is the defender of Christianity and Kirill's narrative that Putin is the defender of Christianity, there was a Russian priest who preached against the war. They rounded him up and they're trying him on war crimes. Does that give us an insight into Putin's view of religious freedom? and how it might be allowed or disallowed should he take over Ukraine? Uh, religion has been manipul manipulated historically by many powers, but in Russia, the tradition uh, of church and state continues, the, this, this, uh, this alliance. melding, alliance. And uh, Putin pays, so you know the patriarch prays how Putin wants. Mm. And um, this is very, very problematical. It's very cynical. It's, it's very weak. And it will be a very heavy burden historically. Mm. Final question, how can people help? They want to help, but they're unsure of who to go yeah. to and the best resources. Yeah. So three things, pray, mm -hmm. be informed, mm. know, know what is behind this, know what is happening from day to day, and third, try to help. There's all kinds of humanitarian uh, projects. Aid to the Church in Need is doing good Great things. Work, yeah. Kniwa. Our, our Cheparchy is making a, a collection. You can look up Philadelphia Our Cheparchy. You'll find it there. Mm -hmm. uh, donate on Sunday. Uh, many dioceses are, are doing collections for collection. the uh, committee for aid to the Church in Eastern Europe of the American Bishops Conference. Mm -hmm. It's done wonderful work over the years. The former head of it is now head of Catholic Charities of Caritas in Ukraine, mm -hmm. Tetyana Stomnicha, and she's doing a wonderful job. So there are, are many Catholic uh, organizations and networks in Ukraine that are, are saving, saving lives. 
Archbishop Gautier, I can't thank, thank you. you enough thank for coming you on, for your witness, your clarity. And of course, we join you in praying for uh, the Ukrainian people who are suffering so terribly in this moment and uh, encourage everybody to help. Thank you again. Let's just say a short prayer, if yes. we may. Um, Lord God, give peace to Ukraine and to the world. Protect the innocent and protect the defenders of the innocent. And may you, Mother of God, cover Ukraine and the world with your mantle. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Archbishop. God bless you. Thank you. Is President Vladimir Putin unstable, unhinged, or even crazy, as some reports suggest? Or is the Russian leader following a well-planned strategy to take back Ukraine? What's driving Putin's assault? Joining me now to discuss is columnist and senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, William Roggio. Uh, Bill, your recent column in the Daily Mail was titled, Putin is not crazy and the Russian intervention is not failing. The West's delusions about this war. Uh, you wrote that the West's failures to understand the enemy will keep us from saving Ukraine. Uh, is that still what you're seeing, an overall misinterpretation of Putin's motives? Yes, I think that's correct. Look, defining Putin as crazy, it's, it's simplistic. It makes us feel good. It makes us understand or it makes us feel better about the horrors of war. Only a madman could do this. Mm -hmm. But there's calculations on the end on, by Putin, by the, and he's not doing this on his own. There's a leadership cadre that he's working with. You can't launch an operation of this scale without having the military on board, with having key political leaders, internal security, <clears throat> things of that nature. So mm. that just isn't the actions of a madman. Russia, you know, we could disagree with Russia's reasons for going into war with Putin's decision, but there are reasons, there is a reasoning, a logic behind it, yeah. as evil as it is. Yeah, no, that's know, what is, I was going to add. He, he's he's yeah. very methodical, despite being horribly evil. Uh, how much money does Putin have to continue this type of fighting? And is he willing to use his reserves to fund this war? Yeah, that's a good question. I do not have an answer to how to, as to what, uh, how, what the Russians can rely on financially to support this war. Russia does have industry. It produces weapons and ammunition. I suspect that that really won't be an issue in the short to medium term. Mm -hmm. And by that, I'll say, let's say up to a year. Then wow. things, you know, the questions really start getting raised. Oh, look, as we see Russia bomb and destroy these cities and, and the, the horrible uh, uh, human toll, what do you think's behind the rationale for destroying a country that he claims to want and to possess? Isn't he going to have to pay to rebuild the country if Ukraine falls to Putin? I actually fall on the other side of this. I don't think that what we're seeing is an indiscriminate, indiscriminate punishment campaign by the Russians just that yet. We're seeing this in parts. We're seeing buildings being destroyed and, and things of that nature. But the Russians have the capacity to completely level entire cities. Mm -hmm. They did this in Aleppo. They did this in Grozny and Chechnya mm -hmm. in the 1990s. We haven't quite gotten to that point. I think that Putin and Russia wants to take Ukraine intact, in actually. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what we're seeing is the result of bad targeting, not using accurate weapons, um, you know, things of that nature. I'm just not seeing evidence 
that he's rolled up the artillery, mm. unleashed it to level entire cities. I don't put it past him. B he will he will do that if he needs to. Bill, are you concerned that there is a glimmer here of good news? I mean, there is uh, today there was a, a meeting with the Russians and the Ukrainians, their representatives. Uh, are you concerned that we're missing the possible silver lining, a diplomatic solution to this, when you had Zelensky say he'd backed off his desire to be a member of NATO. Um, is that an opening that perhaps isn't getting enough attention in the Western media? Well, I think it's not getting enough attention, but I think it's for the other reason. I don't believe that that's a, a positive. I think what we just saw is Zelensky also said that he's open to discussing the status of territories in the Donbass that are recognized by Mm -hmm. um, the Russians is independent, as well as the status of Crimea and, and he said Russian-occupied areas. So, to me, I think he blinked, and I think the press is ignoring this. I also go back to my experience with Afghanistan. When you deal with evil individuals, you can't negotiate. They don't negotiate in good faith. Putin is looking to maximize. Mm -hmm. You know, these negotiations, I think, give false hope. It happened last year with the Taliban, actually the several years with mm -hmm. the Taliban. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now. I have no faith mm. in negotiations resolving conflicts started by evil people. We, we keep hearing this cry um, from Ukraine, from activists in the United States. The archbishop earlier uh, sounded the same call, that we somehow need to close the skies above Ukraine. This week, Poland announced that they're willing to offer their jets to a U.S. base in Germany. This caused a lot of uh, confusion. The Pentagon finally squashed this idea. And their reasoning in the Pentagon is that this would escalate uh, our involvement and the NATO's involvement in this war. Is that the right approach? Well, I think the first on the issue of a no-fly zone, I don't, you know, say, talking about a no-fly zone is, feels good, but I think people don't understand the devil's Correct. in the detail there. To enforce a no-fly zone, you need to strike Russian targets on the ground, surface-to-air missiles, targeting radars, anti-aircraft mm -hmm. guns. And a lot of these systems are not just based in the Ukraine. In fact, most of the um, anti-aircraft radars and surface-to-air missiles are based in Russia. They've shot down Ukrainian warcraft planes this way. We would have to sh conduct strikes inside Russia because you need air superiority in order to enforce a no-fly zone. So that, to me, is if you want to get into a war, a hot war with Russia, that's one way to do it. I think the issue of the aircraft is, to me, is more of a technical issue. So this needed to be done months before the conflict. You need to be able to maintain, have spare parts, um, have pilots, be able to base them. Where are you going to base them in Ukraine while the country's at war? So I think the, the issue of the aircraft, I mean, the Ukrainians certainly can use them. But that will lead to a, an issue of uh, creating a no-fly zone. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure it would help, but on the margins. Yeah. And speaking of uh, the Ukrainian president, who has been pushing these no-fly zones, who is uh, Vladimir Zelensky? Um, his journey into politics has been an unorthodox one, to say the least. He was a comedian, television host, who famously played at being the country's leader in a, in a miniseries. Uh, kind of like Stephen Colbert being elected president of the U.S. or Julia Louis-Dreyfus, <laughs> God forbid. Um, Bill, some are now referring to Zelensky as a new Churchill. Is that overkill? I, I think it's overkill. Churchill ultimately had a, the English Channel to separate uh, England from, from Europe 
and from the Nazis um, had more capacity to defend itself. The U.S. was actively on its side, on the, on the side of the U.K. At, at, by 1941. Um, you know, look, I think I don't I'm not here to bash Zelensky. I think he's mm -hmm. doing as, as good of a job as he can. Um, but, you know, if he's out of office or, or is forced to lead a rump government of U uh, in mm -hmm. western Ukraine, he won't look so Churchillian at that point. Hmm. President Biden announced this week that the U.S. is banning the import of Russian oil. Uh, we've placed sanctions there. Uh, but Biden said we won't be subsidizing Putin's war yet. We're buying oil now from Venezuela. Maduro, just to clear this up, he's an ally of Russia. And now it looks like we're going to buy our oil from Iran. Uh, Americans continue to feel pain at the pump. And the question is, why are we trading dictators in who we purchase our energy from? And how is that somehow more moral? No, it isn't moral. You know, and you put, you put it perfectly. We're trading one dictator who oppresses their people with, uh, and we're buying, you know, getting rid of them as a, a, a seller of oil and just replacing them with two lesser but no less evil uh, dictators. And... Uh, it's a massive mistake. The Biden administration certainly can open up drilling here in the United States and open up the Excel uh, pipeline. There's a, uh, we could be buying more oil from Canada. There's a lot that we can do on our end to that. But like he's looking for a quick fix. Right. And I, you know, I understand it. I understand he's under a lot of political pressure, but this isn't the answer. No. No, I agree. Bill, we will leave it there. Thank you for being here. You can follow Bill Roggio's commentary and analysis on Twitter at Bill Roggio. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Sister Dee Dee Byrne and Robert Royal are straight ahead. But before we get to them, if you happen to be in New Orleans this Saturday, March 12th, come see me and my pal Mary Madeline. We're at the New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University. We'll be there at 2 p.m. I'll be talking about the power of children's literature, the importance of family reading together. I'll also be signing books. Come on by. It's free. The schedule is at bookfest.tulane.edu. All the information's there. And mark your calendars for a special event I'll be speaking at in April. The Cincinnati Men's Conference it takes place Saturday, April 2nd in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'll be one of the headline speakers joined by actor Jim Caviezel, uh, coach Luke Fickle, and some other special guest stars. This conference is for all men regardless of faith. It is intended to inspire men to deepen their spiritual lives and be the leaders they're called to be. For tickets and more information, you can visit CincinnatiMensConference.com. Come see us. It's going to be a great day. We have an exclusive for you tonight. Sister Deirdre Byrne is a retired Army surgeon and a sister of the little workers of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary here in Washington, D.C. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the program this evening to talk about a lawsuit. She's filed it against the District of Columbia for denying her a religious exemption from the COVID vaccination mandate. She's joined by attorney Howard Walsh of the St. Thomas More Society. Sister Dee, thank you for being here, Howard. Thank you, you as well. Uh, now, you applied for this uh, religious exemption from the vaccine mandate. It took the health department six months to get back to you. What did they say, sister? 
They, well, the first said, uh, you know, to uh, explain more, which mm -hmm. I did in January. And then in February, they sent a generic letter, my name on it, that said basically my religious exemption had been, had been, um, been negated and that I would have five days to get vaccinated or lose my license. Now, now tell me, first of all, where are you now? You're in suspension, basically. So, yes, I can't practice. I've closed my clinics for the month. Um, I can't see patients, can't help anyone, and just waiting to see what happens. Hmm. Now, part of your complaint is you are immune to COVID. You've taken a T-cell test, which would indicate that you have immunity. Why isn't that good enough for the D.C. government that's on a, its face? That's a great question. Um, I've had a, some peers who are infectious disease doctors who are claiming that the vaccine is far more superior than the um, in natural immunity, but that's not what I learned in med school, and I, I think it's uh, not true. Mm. And But uh, many institutions are asking for just your vaccine status. They're not asking about natural immunity. Howard, uh, we're seeing this body of evidence coming out in, and new reports almost daily about not only the side effects of these vaccines, but the efficacy of them. And as Sister alluded to, it, 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 I, I read reports out of uh, studies out of London, out of Israel, and they suggest that natural immunity is more robust than the vaccine-induced immunity. Why is the government so uh, intransigent on this point of you must get this vaccine, even if you already have the immunity in place? I don't know. Uh, I think that's the question. I, I think it's important to remember here with uh, Sister Didi uh, in particular, uh, she applied the, the D.C. regulation uh, mandate has an exceptions, medical or religious. She applied for a religious exemption. Uh, so primarily what we're fighting in this particular case, notwithstanding the fact that uh, you know, now we know that vaccinated people uh, don't prevent infection and they get sick. Uh, and so, in fact, I think the CDC said that uh, they're allowing vaccinated workers back into the workplace, even with symptoms. So none of it makes sense. But as far as where we're today is uh, the mandate she applied properly for religious exemption. She has a deeply held religious exemption. Uh, or request for exemption, and they've just denied it out of hand. Sister Didi, two quick questions. First of all, what is that religious exemption? Why do you feel you can't take this vaccine? And then acquaint people with the work you do here in D.C. Okay. So uh, when the vaccine was first uh, described, there were three types, the J&J, &J, which they used abortive fetal tissue to mm. actually make the vaccine. Right. The other two, the American the Pfizer... Um, tested aborted fetal tissue, and I think it started to come out that people started to become more aware about this diabolical connection between vaccine production and usage. So I decided, you know, I felt God had called me to be a voice for life for the unborn, mm -hmm. and I wanted to stand strong regardless. Mm -hmm. And we had been following all the things and wearing masks and being careful, just like if it was the influenza. Sure. And so that's my religious um, belief as a Catholic says that, you know, we have to support and defend the unborn from the moment of mm -hmm. conception till natural death. And I just felt even with experimentation of vaccines, I wanted to, to stay that strong. I wasn't 
going against anyone else who felt they needed to get it right. from, you know, someone who may be elderly. But we also didn't know much about mm -hmm. this vaccine. I was a little bit leery on that regard. But what I do here in the city, I just, I, I do free surgery for the poor. Our community runs a pro bono physical therapy and diabetic eye clinic in Northeast D.C. Mm -hmm. I do a, an abortion pill reversal ministry, uh, which is a ministry that saves about 60 percent of babies who women want to um, change their mind after they've taken the RU486. Wow. You give them high-dose progesterone, and if we get them early enough in the first trimester, we have saved about 60 percent. This is a nationwide mm. program. But I also work in a uh, volunteer at a clinic at Catholic Charities yeah. and give a shout-out to Sibley Hospital. They let me operate for free. They have ex actually accepted my religious exemption, and I just have to get tested every week. But the D.C. government won't. Well, and that just came out 10 days ago. On a Saturday night, I received a letter stating I have five days, so the clock was ticking Saturday night. Mm. So my last day of seeing patients was five days later. Mm. Uh, Howard, how, how can this stand where they lift vaccine mandates at restaurants, uh, private venues, uh, concert halls, but they're allowing it to remain in place for a nun doing care for indigent people, poor people, and those who can't receive help otherwise? It makes no sense at all. But, um, you know, in addition to that, and, uh, pardon me if I missed it, the uh, Sister Deirdre has natural immunity, which we've yeah. confirmed through through tests. Which again, the CDC says is is much more efficacious than than any vaccine. But um, and I think you would make it clear uh, she's a doctor and she's not an anti-vaxxer or anything mm -hmm. like this. She has a particular uh, exception to these currently available vaccines, uh, and that's what we're fighting: is that she's been denied, mm -hmm. her, you know, based on her religious convictions yeah. and beliefs. Uh, the opportunity to continue as she's done, which she's done all through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. During the six months while she was waiting on their decision, she practiced all over the sea mm -hmm. for, the, for the needy and so forth. And now all of a sudden, it's an undue hardship yeah. for them to extend this and, exemption. And we should say D.C. has run afoul of the courts in recent days over these vaccine mandates, mask mandates, uh, shutting down religious worship. The cardinal here in, in uh, Washington sued the D.C. Uh, uh, government over capacity limits. So th they, they seem to have a, a tone deafness when it comes to this First Amendment right. I want to end with this. Why did you decide, Sister Didi, to do this now and, frankly, to make yourself the face of resistance to these vaccine mm -hmm. mandates? I think um, I felt that I didn't really have an option to either take the vaccine mm -hmm. or I um, or I quit practicing medicine in D.C. Um, so I thought there was no, that was really not an option. So right. my third option final was to, to stand strong because I feel like I'm just a little tip of an arrow of so many people who are being forced uh, to do the same thing. So I felt like I had to fight for so many others who are, um, you know, in the same um, boat I'm in. Mm -hmm. We will leave it there. Sister G.D. Byrne, Howard, thank you both for being here. And we will certainly follow this case as it matures, and I hope Thanks you'll come back. Thanks. You can find out more about the work of Sister Dee, Dee Byrne and the Little Workers of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary at littleworkersofthesacredhearts.org.
The invasion of Ukraine has raised questions about the West's and, by extension, the United States' role in the world. Does the United States have the moral authority it once had? And how does that affect our place on the world stage? Joining me now with reaction and analysis is editor-in-chief of thecatholicthing.org and member of the Papal Posse, Robert Royal. Robert, so good to be good back to on set you. with you. Yeah. Um, President Biden has denounced this invasion uh, and Vladimir Putin. He's imposed these economic sanctions. He's encouraged corporations to do the same. Um, Putin has, has made this, put this idea forward that Russia and many other countries in the West see us as a decadent people. The whole West is decadent and immoral. And therefore, Putin and Kirill and the Moscow Patriarchate have to save Christianity. Is that what's going on here? And is that a credible argument? Well, look, I mean, we know how decadent America and the West are. There's no question. I think any Orthodox Catholic, any traditional Catholic is quite aware. And we've talked a lot about it yep. on this show, actually. Yes. In, inside and outside the yeah. church. But that said, does that justify what we see going on where we're sitting here right now and people in Ukraine are dying? Innocent people are dying because bombs are falling on their head from, from Russia. Patriarch Kirill, the head of the, the Moscow Patriarchate, has said this is a war between evil and holiness. Now, okay, you know, I mean, original sin means that there is yeah. evil on both sides. But I have to think that attacking innocent people mm -hmm. and invading another country and killing your brother and sister is itself an yeah. evil. So, look, whatever rationalization they want to put forward on the basis of our, you know, so-called missteps in diplomacy and our threats via, via NATO um, or our decadence, those, in, in, at least in just war theory and in the minds of most people, just normal people who look at the mm -hmm. situation, does not justify the kind of slaughter and, and wholesale mm -hmm. destruction that we're seeing in the world. No, right well, now. I agree with the patriarch. It is a war between good and evil. He's on the evil side. Let me get into this. In February, Sora Bomari, the uh, visiting fellow at Franciscan University, frequent guest of this show, he wrote in the New York Times about the American liberal worldview and how it is perceived around the world. These values, quote, are antithetical to everything conservatives claim to cherish, a ruthless market ideology that puts short-term shareholder gains and the whims of big finance above the demands of the national community, a virulent cultural libertinism that dissolves bonds of family and tradition. Bob, what do you make of that assessment? And does this in any way, this perception, erode our moral authority in the world? That worldview is so bizarre that it's actually even hard, I think, for many of us to credit, because what it comes down to is the dividing line between those nations that accept homosexuality as perfectly moral, perfectly natural, and those who don't. Even Patriarch Kirill has said, mm -hmm. they, meaning the West, have gay pride parades. Right. We don't. And that seems to be the, the, the point of demarcation. In a strange irony, that almost mirrors the Western liberal view, that if, if you don't accept that point of view about homosexuality, you are a promoter of hate, or somehow you're exclusive, or you're biased, or you're bigoted, which for a Catholic means that our very church has been declared illegitimate by this Western liberal opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I want to move on to the White House imposing these sanctions, Bob. And people are saying, look, it was high time. Biden had to sanction the energy sector in Russia. He did that. But he did it to circumvent a congressional bill that not only would have taken away the oil 
imports from Russia or exports from Russia, rather, but would have withdrawn most favored nation status from Russia. Why do you think Biden rushed in to impose the oil sanctions to block the rescinding of that trade status? Well, I have to say, I, I don't entirely understand the, the acts, the, the motives behind the Biden administration. They seem to be, um, they seem to dither over, over issues that need to have swift action, as they did when Russia invaded Ukraine, yet they move very quickly on things like abortion and, and transgender rights and, and whatnot. It just seems to me that they're trying to control this operation for who knows what reasons the, the Biden family which more and more to me seems to have criminal uh, dimensions to it, has had long uh, engagement with Ukraine, and I think a very sleazy connection with Ukraine, particularly through Hunter, but I think also through Joe. Yeah. So um, we may find out someday why this happened, but I'm not exactly sure Well, just the other now. piece of it that I'm hearing from people on the Hill is, they, and this was, by the way, a bipartisan group of, of, of sure. congressmen who had surrounded this bill. The reason the Biden administration came and stopped it is, if you withdraw most favored nation trade status because of human rights violations, acts of war and aggression on peoples in other lands, if you do it for Russia, you'd have to do it for China, who, who enjoy that status right now and is one of the main props that are holding up Russia in this moment well, of Yeah, but of course that, that assumes that you're going to be consistent right. in the way you apply oh, why do that policies. You know, as we know, all the time, different administrations are inconsistent in the way they apply these things for whatever purposes they think are, are useful. I have to move on because I have you here. Uh, there are two important church stories that broke this week. One is particularly troubling. Uh, Pope Francis removed a Puerto Rican bishop. Um, he was removed from office for failing to support COVID-19 vaccinations. Bishop Daniel Fernandez refused to sign a decree to separate parishioners based on vaccination status in his diocese. He also refused to submit his resignation. And he said, quote, I did not want to become an accomplice in a completely unjust action. Bob, this seems arbitrary and unjust. Your thoughts on this action by the Pope and the Vatican? Yeah, he seems to be a very good guy. He's been standing up for the kinds of things, the, the, this creeping corruption and decadence that we're talking right. about in the West in, in a variety of different ways. The Vatican has said that he's been at odds with the other bishops in, in Puerto Rico, which may very well be the case because bishops, even here in the United States, have, have different emphases right. and whatnot. The oddest thing, I think, about this particular case is that we keep hearing that we're in a synodal church where we're walking together. Where there is unity without uniformity, where we can have differences between one part of the world and another. Collegiality. Collegiality and, um, and, and, and uh, subsidiarity. And yet, Rome seems to sweep in in these cases and impose these these um, these decisions, and there's no been no explanation. I mean, what you just said, I think, is is true, but there's been no explanation for why he's been removed right. from his position. So Correct. it just seems to be a, a, an exercise of Roman power. Mm, yeah, and and to want him to resign. But I, I, when I see stories like this, I have to tell you, well, you know, when you're in the public eye. People shoot at you. They say things about you. I felt so bad when I read this story because the man is arbitrarily being removed for office. He says he, he, he doesn't understand it, and he feels that this is, what does he say, Com a completely unjust action. Well, 
the church has an obligation to her flock to explain why exactly are you removing this man and why is he unfit for office. And if it's one little differing on public policy, we may have to remove the entire episcopacy before this thing's over. I mean, again, we're back to consistency. If you're going to drop a rule on Puerto Rico, it better apply to everybody and the world. You're a universal church. And relative to that, last week, a court in Argentina sentenced Bishop Gustavo Zancheta, we've reported on him many times, he was sentenced to nearly five years in prison for sexually abusing former seminarians. Now, Zancheta, so you remember, was appointed bishop by Pope Francis. He's been a favorite of the Holy Father after controversy first surrounded Zancheta in 2015 regarding sexually explicit images on his cell phone. Zancheta blamed those images on a cell phone hack, and the Pope accepted that explanation and in 2017 appointed Zancheta to the Vatican's administration of the patrimony of the Holy See, a position created specifically for him. Bob, how damaging is the Pope's defense of Zancheta in years past now that he is a convicted sex offender? Um, and, and how do you contrast this for what we just saw that bishop in Puerto Rico facing? Well, I think this, this, it's the same problem in both cases, that, that to, to try to uh, lay down some rules for how bishops are going to be held responsible, which is what the Holy Father says he's been trying to do with regard to, to sexual abuse cases. Right. You can't simply, because you know somebody, and, and actually the Pope, before he became Pope, was the confessor for then fathers unchecked us, right. so I don't know what he may or may not have heard in the confessional. But to, to take his word in 2015 that his phone was hacked and the, these, these lewd images were, uh, were inserted there, I've asked people in the, in the intelligence community, is that possible? They say, yeah, it's possible, but in a small area in Argentina, it seems virtually impossible. So on the basis of a personal friendship, essentially the Holy Father ignored the same kinds of principles that he's trying to put into, into place. And if you're just going to ignore the law that you yourself are trying to establish, well, of course, other people are going to do that as well. It leaves, it, it leaves a, a bad taste in people's mouths. And what about the justice for the people who were, who were abused? Right. You know, who were just ignored for a long time. And then on top of that, by the way, there is a Vatican... Um, there's been a Vatican investigation, a canonical investigation of Zanchetta. It began yeah, a couple, right. couple of years ago. We have no information about what that has turned up. Now, the Vatican judiciary system, as we know, is overwhelmed with cases right. and is very, very slow. But still, in a high-profile case like this, where the Holy Father himself has brought a man who not only has sexual but also financial right, rumors of, about yeah, what yeah. was going on back in Argentina, brought him and put him in, in APSA, the optics are just terrible, and, and then again, I think that the, the effect that it has on the attempt to, to really uh, install a system of good laws, of, of an orderly way of deal, dealing with these things, it's immense damage to not only to the Holy Father personally, but to those impersonal elements that have yeah. to exist if we're going to have true justice in the church. No, we, need, we need a common standard and true justice for all parties, and this cronyism cannot go on in Catholicism. We, 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 we deplore it in the business community, in public life. It shouldn't go on here either. And it's, it, it rattles the faithful at a time when they need to know the church speaks with authority and transparency. So let's hope that 
follows in the days ahead. Robert Royal, thank you for being here for your commentary. You can find more of it and that of our comrade, Father Gerald Murray, at thecatholicthing.org. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.